You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome back to the Oz Network, the beginning of a new and very exciting horror. Start again. Uh, welcome back to the Oz Network, the beginning of a new and kind of tormenting month we're going to bring you, uh, as we're going to be celebrating all things gloriously bad movies. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting one because, believe it or not, even though all the movies we're covering here are notoriously bad. Uh, some of them, some of our hosts may actually be defending, but uh, that's going to be part of the fun of this. And we're here to start off the month with Gods of Egypt, which I believe was 2016, if I'm right. Uh, yes, this movie's about two and a half years old at this point, and massive $150 million epic that grossed a fraction of that. Um, actually, believe it or not, the box office had almost made its budget back, but uh, we're going to start off with Gods of Egypt, and um, uh, well, I'll have an interesting story to tell as we start this here, uh, but let's just uh, kick it off. My name is Colin, and I tore the wings off my wife. Imagine what I'll do to you. And my name is Rossi, and if I attempted to explain this movie, your brain would liquefy and explode. <laughs> That's pretty fair assessment, because just just starting it off here, uh, the whole idea about doing this, I think last year, you know, we try to plan different months. So obviously, when it gets to the summer months, we have, like, summer movies. Like, last year, we covered the uh, Spider-Man movies. You know, this year, it was Jurassic World and Mission Impossible. That kind of takes up the whole summer. But by August, usually, it's just Ben and I trying to recover from, like, all these three, four-hour podcasts we have. Right before we get into the anniversary month, which is September, um, coming into August, I was looking for something different to do. I think last year, the only thing we really did was a tribute to George Romero because he died. But sadly, nobody important died in the last week. So uh, we had to bring you some other types of death, which is death at the box office. Uh, and it was only a couple of weeks ago or maybe about a month ago when uh, Jamie and I were uh, trying to find something to watch on Netflix. And I had suggested gods of egypt which was just added to the canadian netflix and uh i i expected it to be a bad movie because i heard it was bad but like nothing prepared me for how bizarre this movie was and how cheesy um and how nonsensical it was it just nothing about this movie made sense the entire time i'm watching this movie i'm just like this is terrible and jamie's like i kind of like it and like what is wrong with you and i, I honestly believe to myself up until I was rewatching this a few days ago and she was still defending it. I honestly believed for myself that she was saying that just to bother me because going back, you know, years ago, like before Jamie and I were married and I was showing her all the James Bond movies, she would constantly tell me, Timothy Dalton's the best James Bond, which would make me so angry. And she admitted later on that she was doing that just to mess with me. Uh, but I thought that's what she was doing with this. So I think I suggested to you, Rossi, that you come on to kind of be a tiebreaker because she thought this movie was great. I thought it was terrible. Um, I will say, watching it a second time, it makes a little bit more sense, but that just shows more of the flaws of the movie. Uh, just let me know right away. Are you more Team Jamie or Team Colin on this one? I would say I'm definitely more on your side, but I feel like I'm not very anti this movie. I don't know. I feel like it gets fair criticism. Like, I don't think it's overhyped or underloved or anything like that. I think it's fair. Like, I don't think it's good, but I think that some of the stuff that's been disliked and hated about it and received negative acclaim for 
is not as bad as it said it is. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some good points about it, and on the whole, it's not. It wasn't awful. Like I've seen worse movies and worse things. Probably I, I'm blanking on a name, so I can't give you an example. But I think that there's been worse things where I'm like, I don't want to watch this, and I'll just turn it off. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I... <laughs> you forced me to watch it, so I couldn't turn it off. <laughs> Well, I think that's fair, too, because I think as we cover these bad movies, it's the same thing when you look at, like, the Razzie Awards. The Razzie Awards are never really about the worst movies. They're about the most hilariously bad movies that were popular, whether it be popular because they were big hits or popular because it was popular to make fun of them, like Gods of Egypt. And strangely enough, there are some slightly enjoyable moments in this movie, but it is kind of enjoyable for the wrong reasons, and I like what you said about it having fair criticism, because even going through the good reviews for this, we're, we're going to do something, especially on these bad ones, where we go through a lot of the reviews on the end. And even the good reviews for this movie are very aware that this is a bad movie that maybe just kind of works a little bit. Um, I had no clue what was going on the first time I watched this movie. Like, it was so confusing for such a simple movie that presents itself like you would expect this would be more like the 300 i mean maybe that's just because it's got gerard butler in it and he's shirtless but it's i would say this is more like i don't know more of more of like a corny kids cartoony version of lord of the rings than it is 300 like it almost seems to be scaling too young for its audience when it's like mythology and all that but all the stuff that uh, is set up like in the opening narration of this movie explains so much, but I didn't get it till I watched it the second time. And I think that's part of the problem with this movie is that if you need to watch it two times to really understand half of what's going on, like then they failed as far as storytelling goes. Yeah, I think the script was probably awful too. It just felt like it was cliches and just like it. I feel like when I was watching it, I felt my biggest criticism of the thing when I was watching it was like I didn't really need this movie like it felt unnecessary to make it mm-hmm. like I feel like we have gotten ancient Egypt retellings and you know stories of the mythology and all that so many times that I feel like I didn't need it again and they didn't do anything necessarily new about it except you know add a lot of fun effects which I think was the only reason they wanted to make it for these cool effects and I mean, some of the effects are kind of cool. Some of the effects are like really bad. I think that's the other thing about this movie. It's, oh, I'm going to have fun going through the effects on this one. Because one of the things that Jamie was saying to me, and she was trying to defend it, but I don't know if she ever really came up with a good argument for what it was she liked about the movie. Because at one point she said, you know, not every movie needs to be about the visuals or the story. I'm like, tell me what else this movie was attempting to do. They're trying to have big visuals and they're trying to have this really big story. There was no attempt to do anything else with this movie, you know, other than put Jamie Lannister in an eye patch, which again was just a little bit weird. Like, are you a game of Thrones fan? I have not watched it. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the main guy in the movie, Horace, uh, you know, he was from game of Thrones and he plays kind of the same similar type of sleazy character, except he has an eye patch in here and in game of Thrones, he loses a hand or something like that. But I don't know if this movie was trying to appeal to like game of Thrones crowds, but to me, it felt like, <coughs> uh, it felt like a little bit of the mummy, uh, a little bit of like the 300, a little bit of Lord of the Rings. Just, I, yeah. Kind of like what you said, like, all of it's been done before, so what were they aiming for? And, like, is this genre really hot right now that they need to spend $150 million? There's a lot of people out there who are just dying to see these fantasy Egyptian epics. Yeah, I don't know 
maybe there was a a lot of acclaim for Egyptian ancient Egypt retellings. <laughs> yeah, it seems out of place for 2016, 20 whatever it was released in. It just seems so okay. <laughs> yeah, that that's the biggest mystery to me is that they would have spent this much money on a movie that I mean anybody watching this would say like maybe you can get like a straight to Netflix movie out of this or, you know, straight to DVD, but how they got all the stars to sign on for this, I don't know either. Just going through the people involved in this movie. Um, so I already mentioned, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Nicola, Nicola Coster-Waldo. That's the main guy who plays Horace in this. The main star, of course, Jamie Lannister from uh, Game of Thrones is what he's most famous for. Gerard Butler, most famous for everything where he could be shirtless. Um, and a bunch of other Not actors. <laughs> And a bunch of other actors that nobody cares about. And Jeffrey Rush as the sun god Ra on the International Space Station above a flat Earth. That's some of the stuff we see in this movie. Uh movie was directed by Alex Proyas, and I think this is one of the big surprises. Because the guy that directed this movie, he, I guess in, you know, 25 years ago, was considered, like, the next big, you know, science fiction director. He made the movie The Crow uh, he made another movie called Dark City, which was like you know hugely acclaimed. Uh, then went on to kind of get into more um, blockbuster stuff like I Robot and Knowing with Nicolas Cage, which I mean both those movies I think were flawed, but a lot better than this. I just have no clue what he's doing in this movie. And you knew this was going to be great, considering it comes from the screenwriters of Dracula Untold and The Last Witch Hunter with Vin Diesel. I mean, how did this movie ever fail? I don't understand. Uh, but let's start covering some of what's going on in this movie here. So if you didn't pick up what was going on here, I did watch it a second time. And the opening narration, or all these shots of Egypt, explains everything in this movie that's going to make no sense if you're tuning this out. Or even if it just goes by so quickly you can't follow it. So the gods live among the humans in this version of Egypt, except they're taller. Um, they can transform into birds... And other animals, except they transform into metal versions of them. Uh, you have transformers. They're, they're transform. They're me- yeah. They basically are transformers. Or like the uh, what was the trans? There was beast beast wars or something like that. One of the transformers that actually had them transform into animals. That's exactly what it was. So you have the sun god Ra, his two sons Osiris and Set, and they're at odds. But uh, Osiris has the crown, and he's about to pass the crown. So this is all the setup for what's going to happen. Osiris, the good brother, is going to pass his crown, his his rule over to his son, which is Horus, which is Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. So what, first of all, doesn't make sense, especially when you get later into this movie, is why a god is passing on the rule. Because, I mean, in no way is Osiris, like, of retirement age. This isn't, like, an elderly man who's like, I can't keep this up anymore. He's just like, oh, it's time to pass the throne on to my son, who is in no way equipped to rule anything because we're introduced to him waking up, hungover, surrounded by about... Now, this is where the excess of this movie is so over the top. He's not surrounded by two or three women. He's surrounded by about 48 women around him waking up hungover on the day of his coronation. And this is the guy that's supposed to be the hero of the movie. So it's no wonder like, when Set comes in during this coronation here that I'm siding with Set, Gerard Butler's character, who's supposed to be the big evil villain, 
But I'm seeing it from his point of view. It's like, well, how come your son gets to take the throne? Like, he's an idiot. He's lazy, which he is completely in this movie. Uh, there's a giant fight that happens here where they turn into birds, which, again, just looks silly. And I think it just loses all the, the perspective. Like, when, when you have a movie with this much effects, and this can be a big complaint I have coming up later on, when they transform into their, their transformer selves here, uh, they just blend into the background because they're just gold and brown and everything in this movie is gold and brown. I mean, you look at the poster. It's like you're looking at one color. At no point do they think maybe we should add some silver in here so you can tell what these things are flying around. But Set comes to uh, disrupt the coronation and uh, he kills his brother in the process, Osiris. Um, and another issue I have here, again, that this whole weird setup we have with the height differences between the gods and the humans, which in no way is it clear, because it's probably about 45 minutes into this movie before you actually see a god and a human standing side by side in the same shot. You know, as this is all going on, you're also introduced to the human character, so there's really two lead characters in this, so Beck is... Another hero that in no way should we be rooting for because we're introduced to him shoplifting, stealing some type of necklace, like pretty expensive looking necklace to impress his girlfriend. Not something where he needs to give it to her, not something where I'm going to sell this because I'm starving. But he's like, I want to impress my girlfriend who is in no way impressed by this necklace. And he's supposed to be our hero. Meanwhile, this shopkeeper has probably just lost like, a, I don't know, $500 or his day's wages on this poor kid who just, you know, stole it just to impress a girl. And these are our two heroes. Um, another thing that doesn't make sense here, well, I'll get into this a lot later on, but basically what happens is uh, after Set kills his brother Osiris, and he takes on his nephew, Horus, Horus says something about, like, there's this mention about his vision being his power, like he has, you know, the, the perfect vision, but he's the god of the air, so... Is he the god of vision? Is he the god of the air? Like, why is he the only god who has two powers, even though he does nothing in this movie? They have a fight, and he overpowers him and rips out his eyeballs, making Jamie Lannister blind. And Gerard Butler now has the power of two extra gods, apparently, because it's something I like out of Highlander. And at this point, we're going to jump ahead. Like, I don't know if it's, it's supposed to be a year, two years, three years, something like that. But, I mean, this this whole opening, there's so much story that gets thrown at you just in the opening narration and then there's basically nothing going on here other than like a couple of brothers feuding i don't side with the heroes in this movie i don't understand the whole purpose of why he's ripping out his eyes uh and and what power this gives him considering his powers flight this whole movie's a mess here yeah i felt i think that the they did at least a decent job with giving us the story of um you know why the guy Gerard Butler comes in and says you're not fit for king I feel like they do that pretty well like you know you see this guy blazing around and then he just buys his you know lover all these things and all of a sudden it's like you're not fit to be king and so I get that I think they did a fine job storytelling that like I don't think I was I wasn't lost at any point during that I think it's later on where they're like throwing off all these things but I just feel like and I guess this is the one issue that I did have with the special effects was that it reminded me a lot of the Star Wars prequels where you're like, everything is not real. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, these look too polished to be ancient Egyptian 
ruins or even though they're in the royal area it just looked so clean so perfect all these people who are probably poor beyond belief are giving gold to the <laughs> gods and every, it just seemed so so forced for some of this stuff and I didn't mind the transformations that much I didn't mind uh, the the height difference although it looked better in Lord of the Rings way better years back but I didn't mind it that, that wasn't that bad it's just so confusing and then they're underusing all the other gods in the entire in the entire movie yeah there's gotta be like, like dozens of them but according to this movie there's about six yeah but then like but even in the whole beginning um you know the first fight that we get of the movie which is Gerard Butler versus lazy guy <laughs> um, it which I thought was which I think was a probably the best action sequence of the movie in my opinion I thought it, it didn't rely too much on effects I thought it was pretty decent for what we get um, but all the other people are just standing there mm-hmm. like the the woman with the wings all she does is cover her his father it's just like what is going on why are all these people just standing there and then the one woman stands up and stops it somehow and it was just a mess. And the one with the wings, like, that's supposed to be Gerard Butler's wife, from what I understand. Because she's the only other one with wings in this movie. And he takes them from her later on, and that's the line he has about killing his own wife. But, like, why is she protecting her husband's enemy here? I mean, I would think if this is his wife, she'd at least be siding with him. Considering he is probably more of a hero in this story than, than you know, I'm not going to say his brother, but then at least, you know, Lazy Horace. I don't know. I think everyone's wrong. I don't think anyone's good. <laughs> Another complaint I want to have about the effects here, and this is, this is non-stop throughout this movie. This movie is nothing but clouds of dust everywhere, and yet you don't ever see a speck of dust on anybody's face, their body, their clothes, nothing. You have all these pillars collapsing here during this fight scene, and again, there's dust of clouds going all over everybody, and like they're not even closing their eyes. Like... The, the effects are so lazy in this movie that there's not even any thought put into, like, these people could at least be covering their faces. And another problem here, as the, the big fight's happening and the, this whole temple is collapsing, you see the CGI crowds, which just scramble... Who's gonna bring that up? <laughs> they, they scramble in, like, every direction. Like, they, these people are going nowhere. You have a group of people who are going this way and another one going this way. Like, where are these people going? Yeah, the the, the two humans of the movie get separated because people are running in opposite directions but (laughs) it makes no sense there's apparently like 108 exits from this building because everybody's going their own way there are no exits it's all open yeah well there was only one way into this i mean we saw everybody enter through the one we saw set and his army come in the one entrance and then everybody's just like let me just run to this corner over here and then you can see i was looking in the back when they were talking at, at one point toward the end of the fight and you just see people running back and forth in the CGI. Yeah. They're not even moving. <laughs> they're just like running back and forth and they're like, they're not escaping. Why would they still be there if this fight was really going mm. on? It just, yeah, like so much like the Star Wars prequels where it's like those people are literally in the background not doing anything because they're not real. Yeah, like I, I think that's that whole era of the Star Wars prequels, the Lord of the Rings movies. Every movie just became a massive crowds. And I think they got to the point where they could make massive crowds look believable 
but they didn't have a way of saying, well, we can't animate every single one, so let's just scramble them everywhere, and that's what we get in every movie now. I do, I will say, I really liked the effect of when, uh, I don't even know their names, Gerard Butler's shields break. I thought that was a really cool, Mm -hmm. like with the shattering and the slow-mo, I thought that was probably the most effective thing we've seen up until this point in terms of display and everything. I mean, after this, the movie jumps ahead. Um, I'm reading here, it's, it's about a year that it jumps ahead. And now this is where slavery is coming to Egypt. So everybody's a slave, enslaved by set, um, except for one guy, which is uh, Urshu, who is the guy who builds this giant Washington monument here, uh, which serves no purpose in the movie. Now, this actor, like, again, another great actor in this movie, Rufus Sewell. Like, are you familiar with him from anything else? Nope. He's he's always in these types of movies, like these period movies. Like, I know him the best from A Knight's Tale. Like, please tell me you've seen A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. Uh, oh, ugh. we got to watch A Knight's Tale. That's a good one. Uh, anyways, like, if you just look through his filmography, it's all period movies, and he's always playing... <laughs> Like, a really, really sleazy, pompous villain like this. Uh, his character doesn't really need to be here because he's just building a tower. And then the only other purpose he serves is that he's the the slave owner to Zaya, who's Beck's girlfriend, one of the two human characters here. Uh, and you have this, this thing about uh, uh, Zaya, you know, who believes in the gods, and Beck who doesn't, and she says, you know, you need to go get the eyes of Horus, uh, because this is our only hope. Like, why of all, we, we know there's other gods out there. And why she's like, our only hope is the one guy who did nothing in his life except pick a fight with his uncle in which he lost in about a minute and a half and got his eyes plucked out. And this is our hero. Like, there are tons of other gods out there. She's not even saying raw the sun god who's up there who's all powerful who can do everything she's like no Horus is our guy go bring me his eyes uh so Beck goes off to get the eyes of Horus um and we get a little Tomb Raider scene here this becomes a big problem I have in the movie the character of Beck because he seems superhuman and other characters will even mention well no, mortal man can do that. And the movie goes nowhere with it. Like, I understand that they had an idea. They wanted to make a franchise out of this. But if you introduce stuff like this with the ambition of a franchise, you follow it up in some way where you tease, we will reveal something. It's like one or two loose mentions of, oh, how does he do this stuff? Is he some type of god? But he just seems to be superhuman. And he, this is, you, you want to talk about a movie where, you know, they jump the shark and, you know, bad overblown effects. The Hobbit movies... The famous Legolas scene where Orlando Bloom is running across blocks that are collapsing and somehow he can jump off of these things, which defies all physics. That's all Beck does in this movie is just defies the laws of physics. Um, I feel like my the whole thing about these two uh, human characters just gives me so much of they wanted to try and get the Aladdin and Jasmine. yeah of the situation with Aladdin's the the street rat he's stealing from the shops and he's able to jump across buildings and do this and she's in the trapped in the the luxury palace or whatever and it just fails because Aladdin didn't defy gravity and you know he it just a poor man's Aladdin and Jasmine that just didn't really contribute much to the movie like i it just 
annoys me that every movie needs to have this love story and this is it like it if these characters were not here the story wouldn't change overly that much no not at all i mean except for maybe that the guy would get the eye but that's the only (laughs) thing that really changed that horace gets his eye but like horace doesn't even we find out the end of the movie horace doesn't need his eye so much of this movie is just convenient it's like they came up with these are and i know there's a lot of movies that are written like this i mean the james bond movies the indiana jones movies that i'm big fans of they're written in a similar way where they're like we have these action sequences let's write a story around it but this movie is like relying so heavily on their story and everything's just done out of convenience oh well horace needs his eyes okay well now we got him his eyes oh horace doesn't need his eyes anymore and there's gonna be so much more stuff like that later on but i never even got the whole aladdin thing i was trying to pinpoint I'm like what does this remind me of is it prince of persia is it uh you know lord of the rings or whatever but no that's totally it uh, but yeah, like these characters, like their, their love story doesn't matter either because there's a, a slightly more interesting love story in this movie that again goes nowhere. And I think part of the problem here is that these two characters are introduced. I mean, just in this upcoming sequence here, like Zaya was introduced in one scene where he stole the necklace for her. Then she's there at the coronation. We get separated from him. She says, steal Horace's eyes. She's dead in the next scene. And then we spend the entire movie, we need to bring her back to life. Like, the audience doesn't know who she is, nor do do I think anybody really cares. Uh, When he brings the eyes back after his Tomb Raider sequence here, too. Or first, before we get to that, here's another thing I loved. This character, who doesn't have faith in the gods, uh, just goes and says, Oh, okay, I need to steal Horus's eyes. So he knows where to go. Apparently nobody else can get into this thing. Something that I'm sure they would have fulfilled in future sequels. That doesn't help this become a coherent movie. Uh, When he gets the eye and all these scorpions are about to attack him, he turns the eye on them as if he knows this is some magic power. Now nobody has ever taken the eyes out of Horus's skull before. So how does he know that these eyes are going to hold back scorpions of all things? Like It's like if you have a crucifix... You know, in in a horror movie and you hold it up to like, you know, some type of creature that's coming after you, that's something where it's like, okay, there's there's folklore about that. Or uh, what's the thing with werewolves? Are there, um, like silver bullets with werewolves or uh, all those monsters have like their kryptonite or whatever. Kryptonite, let's even say. At what point are any of these characters made aware that Horace's eyes are the kryptonite for scorpions. Because <laughs> he just holds this out and they're all like, ah, and they shriek and they shrivel back. And he doesn't seem surprised by this. Like, for a guy who in this movie has no faith in the gods, he just believes the gods will do anything. So I don't buy his character at all. When he goes back and you have the slave owner character who catches him and Zion, he's like, oh, you got the eye of Horus. And he makes his getaway by, again, turning the eye on him like... He seems to know or be able to will this thing to blind people. But he's at no point been taught how this works. And when he does it, he's like, we got to make a quick getaway. They're going to kill us. Let me blind everybody by shining Horace's eye on them. And then he pauses to make out with his girlfriend for approximately 10 to 15 seconds and then run away. Like, I'm sorry, that 10 or 15 seconds is what costs her her life. I'm calling it right now. Then they make a getaway in this horse-drawn carriage which, if you're watching the aerial views, is traveling approximately 250 kilometers an hour <laughs> by what my eye can spot. It's just completely absurd, the speed that this thing runs. When they're in the carriage, the wind barely even seems to blow their hair as they're going at the speed of light. Uh, it's just, you know, flying through every obstacle. Again, like, effects that just... It, you talk about how effects 
visually don't look real. What I hate more than anything are action scenes where it's filmed in a way where you're like, this doesn't look real. Like, there are ways to do big over-the-top action sequences like this. You need to make it look like a camera really could have filmed that. And when you have these cameras that are zooming all over the place and this carriage that can travel 250 kilometers an hour and jump off of mountains and do everything else under the sun and these people don't even seem to get whiplash from it. Like, that's where I'm completely lost. Um, And he magically is able to hit her on his first arrow. Yeah. (laughs) And then misses the guy literally next to her. Next to her. It's a miracle shot. And it's super wide. (laughs) Arrow shot. It just... Another part of the unreal, like, attitude of the scenes. And then I didn't get why this architect for the monument has all these important god manuscripts. He's the about, keeper oh, of, like, their records, too. Well, but then we they go to Th- Thoth? I don't know. Uh, the Black Panther guy. And mm-hmm. he's got all the scripts and knowledge and papers and ledgers and everything. Why was that not information not already there? I don't know why there's this like the holy grail of knowledge at this architect's office that is the key to getting the eyes and every, it just seemed perfectly planned like not Again, like, like so forced everything in this movie from what the characters do to their purposes like what their characters purposes to everything that happens over the course of the story it's all just convenience like well isn't it convenient that this is what happened next like that's what i'm talking about and the black panther character i mean i have a good excuse for that like the um i can't remember his, his name in here but yeah like the 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 guy who's like maybe the god of knowledge in here the same guy who plays t'challa and in, in black panther i mean he he was spending his entire year trying to come up with some type of poem about lettuce so he's a little preoccupied he's the dumbest character in this movie <laughs> i mean that's the last guy i would want to be keeping the records yeah i don't know we'll get to that character for me i just you know what else was just... great during this chariot chase scene here, I love that Beck is, after she's shot, holding her, not even steering the chariot, and this thing is still navigating throughout this valley. Like, he doesn't even have the reins of this, nor is he looking where they're going. Ma- movie magic. This movie is all magic. <laughs> um, so they eventually get there, and of course he knows immediately where Horace is. Horace, for a guy that, like, I don't know, he's a wanted fugitive, or who knows what is. It's very easy for Beck to find his eye, to find him. And meanwhile, Set couldn't find him this entire time? I don't understand that. They get to this... Well, th- wait, so I don't, I missed that. He was hiding? Well, I think that's the, because the idea that... Gerard Butler wanted to kill him? Well, I think Gerard Butler let him live, but he was still in hiding. Uh, maybe, like, I don't know, it was his shame or something like that, but he's been gone for who knows how long. Okay. The, yeah, I can't make sense out of this. I apologize. Um, anything else you want to add on the uh, the slavery subplot in the Tomb Raider scene? Um, that is it is a Tomb Raider moment. <laughs> um, One of many in this movie. No, really. I th- I was like, I didn't. It was very. It felt very. Um, 2016 with all the mechanical traps Mm -hmm. 
Like how how do, I don't even know how that would work if we were to build that right now. Like build a a shadow induced trap. Do you know there's a weird thing with this movie where it wanted to blend this being like the real ancient Egypt that everybody knows about with the mythology of ancient Egypt that I think just doesn't work in this movie. I think you have to go all out. I mean, you could do an ancient Egypt where the gods exist, but they're just gods. I think that's kind of like what Clash of the Titans does. But on Earth, they're still all gods. This whole idea, I think what partly ruins this movie is the idea that the gods just live among them. And you wonder like, well, you know, what's the purpose of humans versus gods? And uh, you look at other things where they'll go full mythology and I think it makes a little bit more sense. Um, but I don't know, this movie's like part Clash of the Titans, part Hercules. Well, I think that this movie could have been more effective as a uh, political drama slash like crime-based what? thing. No, think, instead of an action movie. They made it as an action movie, but mm-hmm. it, it could have been more interesting as like a, like a political style thing where it's all about power and control and yeah these conversations where all of the gods could have been present and all of these kind of authorities could have played out instead of these people are fighting and then these people are fighting and then this monster appears mm-hmm. and then this god transforms. i just feel like if it was a lot more like psychological and more like based on like dialogue and plot then it would have been far more effective than just action sequence break action sequence break i think they try to go there closer to the end of the movie as well but there's no build-up to it like it's not a part of the story so like we're jumping straight to the end here but when horace just makes this you know proclamation when he's finally king at the end sorry to spoil it for people <laughs> what uh <laughs> rossi clearly stopped watching this movie uh halfway through i wouldn't blame you if you did um but yeah, like when he makes that uh, proclamation when he's like, from now on, anybody who enters the afterlife, it's going to be based on your good deeds and not your riches. Like that, that could have been a part of the movie about, you know, oh, if you have to enter afterlife, this isn't fair. Or what do you do? The gods, I, even though I don't think that there's a way that this version of the movie could have ever worked. Nor am I like 100% convinced that like I want to see a political one of this. You introduce just a little bit of that into an action movie like this, and it makes a lot more sense. Like if we had the god saying, you know, here's the problem. Set wants to be a dictator. You know, this god wants it to be, you know, your, your rewards based on riches. This person wants it. At least he gives you something to get behind for Horus. Horus doesn't have anything throughout this course of this movie where he learns a lesson or wants to change anything. They just throw those moments in at the very end, but there's no build-up to it. Well, th- here's something you, I think you could have done a little bit more within the story, or, that, or that's poorly scripted here. Uh, when Beck gets there, and he wants to bring Zaya back to life, because, of course, he has all this faith in the gods, even though he has no faith in the gods. Uh, he finds Horus completely blindfolded. Uh, Horus can sense his own eye, which is really funny. Uh, and they have this little chase scene, which there's a hilariously bad shot of Beck jumping off of or flipping off of Horace's back as he's trying to evade him. And um, eventually the idea here is that uh, he gives Horace's eye back, but he says, you know, you have to bring my girlfriend back to life, uh, which Horace is like, okay, let me see what I can do. And then he sits there, he looks at it, almost just looks at it, 
well, nothing I can do here. <laughs> She's gone. And then he just passes her to the afterlife. And there's all this talk here about like, oh, she'll never make it to the afterlife. She doesn't have anything. Uh, this ceremony they do, like, where was she otherwise? Because her body, her, her spirit's still in her body until they give her this ritual or whatever. And then all of a sudden, Anubis, the, the I don't know if that's the god of the afterlife, comes up and just grabs her. Uh, but then this whole thing becomes, you you have to find a way to bring her back to life. No, nobody can bring her back to life. Oh, but you have to find her. Well, there might be some way. Just follow me. This is the biggest problem with this movie. The only real drama there is with the characters is that Horace tells Beck here, I will bring your girlfriend back to life. But he doesn't have a plan to do that. You don't see that in his performance here. You don't see any of his expressions that... He can't do this. The way he sells it to the audience is like, okay, I have an idea. Just follow me. But then later on when, um, you know, his his wife or girlfriend or whatever is saying like, oh, you can't bring somebody back to life. Shh, don't tell him. I think you should have made that something throughout the course of the movie because when they just drop it on you later on, like, it, again, another thing that just there was no build up to. Uh, there's another weird line here. I don't even know why I wrote this down. You, you can't strike a three-legged elephant. Like, there's so many weird lines in this movie. You oh, can't... my. That was awful because <laughs> it was about the the fight, the fight, in air mm-hmm. quotes, of the little boy and Horace fighting. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you can't hit a three-legged elephant, whatever, whatever. And I was like, he's almost hitting you <laughs> repeatedly, and he has no eyes. And you're telling him he can't hit anything? And then the little kid's at the edge of whatever this is and is about to fall off. And the and the guy's like, well, you can't do anything. It's like, you almost lost to a blind guy. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing with this, you can't strike a three-legged elephant that doesn't make sense is he's implying, well, you can't hit anything because you're blind or whatever. But like a three-legged elephant's going to be easier to hit. But I don't think it's going to be that much easier to hit than a four-legged elephant. I mean, I, I don't understand. Like, there's... If you had done a cheetah, you know, a three-legged cheetah, well, a cheetah, three-legged cheetah's not going to move. It's just this, this whole movie has terrible lines. I also love Zaya as, uh, you know, they're bringing her to the afterlife. She's like, I have only my smile. Like, she hasn't smiled once throughout the course of this movie. I just, oh, I hate all the dialogue in this. Uh, so, yeah, eventually Horace says, if I kill Set and take back the crown, then I can bring her back to life. Which, of course, makes loads of sense. And don't you think Beck, the guy who's the one who questions the gods, at some point should have been like, if that were true, why is Set not bringing back all of his own soldiers when they die? Like, he, if this were a real power that he is very easily convinced Beck he could do, Set should just be able to go in there, have all the soldiers die, bring them back to life, and they go and they kill everybody else. Like, there's no reason for Beck to believe any of this. Um... It's another thing where they're just coming up with new things just to the, the convenience of the plot. Uh, so they, then they get the mountain climbing scene, which, again, looks so effortless. These characters can climb a mountain without struggling at all. Uh, well, I, I give credit to one because one's a god, but then why is this <laughs> young human at the same pace yeah, not complaining at, once he hits the top? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean... Granted, Horace has one eye. I mean, a man who can climb a mountain with one eye had a disadvantage, maybe. <laughs> it's just inconsistent storytelling. Like, I'd be okay if they kept, like, the superhuman human in Beck. Mm-hmm. Like, or even if there was, like, a storyline where he was, like, secretly, like, part god or something like that. 
where it makes sense. But they were like, he can't do anything. Does this really impossible task without effort. Mm -hmm. He can't do anything. Does this really near impossible (laughs) task without effort. It just, I wish there was a consistency. Like at least justify why he can do it. Even if it's a bad justification. Here's the best inconsistency in the entire movie. They get to the top of the mountain and Horace says, I can't transform and fly because I don't have both my eyes. And then he sits there and he asks Ra, hey, can you transform me so I can fly? (laughs) Like what? He spent a year sitting in a cave blind and he's like, I can't transform without my eyes unless I ask my grandfather. And then just asks him and he gives it to him. Like, I'm sure you could have done this at some point in the past. So they fly off to the International Space Station. This is the best thing in the whole movie where we get uh, multiple uh, Academy Award nominated actor Jeffrey Rush as the sun god Ra on the International Space Station floating above a flat Earth. <laughs> now, this is where this movie should have either just embraced the whole mythology thing or just done a real world thing but like is it just oh i i can't make any sense out of this and when he, they get up there they find out that the reason the sun god ra is not there to rule the world as he should be is because every single night he has to battle a giant space worm and we get the briefest of clips of a giant space worm coming and him giving his best gandalf you shall not pass line and the space worm just flies away. What is this garbage? Seriously. Like, this is Jeffrey Rush. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean, I mean, he's the only good thing, including Johnny Depp, he's the only good thing in those movies now. But this guy's been nominated for multiple Academy Awards. What is he doing in this movie? And, like, it's not just that he signed on for a movie. They said, we're going to make a really cool fantasy epic. It's going to be about the gods living among humans and they're going to be battling each other, and it's going to be for the throne. At some point, he had to ask, who am I playing? It's like, you're going to be playing Raw. You're going to be looking old and shriveled, and you'll glow occasionally, and you're going to be sitting on the International Space Station battling a space worm above a flat Earth. Tell me this isn't the, the, the stupidest thing in this entire movie. Yeah, it turned into, like, Alien for half a second. Mm-hmm. And it's still shocking that, like, this is actually a pretty star-studded cast Yeah, to make this movie. Like, all the leads have been at least nominated for multiple awards and then including won some. It's just crazy that not one of them was like, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the other funny thing. When he's on the space station, like, he has a space station there. He's got this powerful staff. He can fight a space worm. He's sharpening his store, sword on a stone wheel? Like, I just... I don't understand the logic of this movie or the technology that exists either. It's God and mortal machinery working together. Which doesn't make sense, because wouldn't God just use God things? Uh, there is something... Like, as, as dumb as this whole sequence is... Um, some of the only good things in the movie, I'm not going to say good things, but promising things that they introduced in these sequences here, where I thought they could really go somewhere with this, they do nothing with. Like, you have to be wondering yourself, well, if, if Ra is there, why does he allow this to happen? And even Horace questions him and says, 
you know, uh, he killed your son. And he's like, well, they're both my sons. And that actually makes a lot of sense. You're like, well, yes, uh, my, my dead son, your father, was killed and murdered, but he was murdered by my other son. And he's not going to love one son more than the other. And he even says at one point, he said, I'm not entirely sure that you would be a better ruler than Set. Which, again, I think is what everybody in the audience should be questioning right now. So those are interesting things that they should have explored in this movie, especially the idea of you're not necessarily more equipped than Set is to rule because you are lazy and you're a womanizer and, you know, you don't have both your eyes, <laughs> so on, so on. You've never accomplished anything. Uh, but they go nowhere with that. Like, that would have been a great thing to follow through on in this movie where even Horace is like, well, there's people who are looking at me to be a hero just because I was a hothead and I picked a fight with my uncle when nobody else would, but I'm not the right guy for this. Like, make him an unwilling hero. And they, they, I think they, they try to do some of that later on when he eventually gets his power back, which again makes no sense, uh, but we'll get to that later on. But yeah, there are interesting ideas they had here that they just did nothing with. Um, we'll just group in a few other scenes here. We get to see Set in his little bug flyer. So there's like giant bugs that can fly people around in here, which a lot of people have. He goes and he kills his wife's army here. So this is the other character. I think it's the same character that, that covered his brother, uh, Osiris, when he died with the wings. And he goes in to basically kill uh, his wife and his wife's army. Um, and there's another really weird thing in here that I don't think needed to be a part of the movie where they talk about how, you know, oh, his wife says, oh, this is why Ra never allowed you to have children. Like, so Ra made one of his sons impotent, and that is explored more in this movie than the idea of which one of these characters would be a better ruler. Why is this part of the movie, that he's impotent? Very relevant. <laughs> it's just weird. And then here's something else that I've watched this movie twice now I can't make sense on. When they come back, when Horace comes back uh, with Beck, and they have this thing about the, the water, they, they took this water from the space station, and they said, this is going to kill the desert. Like, like, what is this killing the desert thing that sets power comes from the desert or destruction? Like, I don't understand that. And they have this fetch me water boy scene. Uh, we get the weird creature, the Minotaur or whatever, that picks a fight with Beck, and Horace comes to the rescue. Um... Oh, here's the best line in the movie. This should have been my quote. Where Beck says, uh, where he's asking him something like, you know, where's Horace? He goes, up your behind alongside the goats you keep up there. Like, uh, there are a million other ways to write that line and actually have it play somewhat funny. But it legitimately is up your behind alongside the goats you keep up there. <laughs> That's the worst insult I have heard in a long time. And here comes the worst CGI fight of the movie. Where it's just people who don't even look like people like for a video game i think this looks bad um and uh, i guess we'll stop before we get to my favorite character in the movie here but let's anything else you want to talk about here when the as they come back in that fight scene okay i have an off tangent thing that's been bugging me okay so i looked up on google the egyptian gods family tree because <laughs> i was really confused because I'm thinking in terms of in terms of the way that the British do it for their their rule, mm -hmm. the eldest son will become the ruler, and then if they're not around, next son, and so on and so on. So based on this, what I found, Ra had two children, Shu and Tenef Tefnut. 
who then got together and had two children, Geb and Newt, who then got together and had four children, one of which is Set. So he's his great-great-grandson? is, like, so far removed (laughs) from Ra. And then Horus, which is the main character of the movie, is even more removed because two of the families, like Osiris and Isis, got together and had Horus. So that's five steps for Horus, who's supposed to be the king in the crowning. I mean, based on the true actual mythology of the gods, like this is what is supposed to happen. So I was really confused how Set and Horus are the two in contention to rule Egypt or to be one of the principal gods of Egypt. Yeah, like even even trying to play on this heavy Egyptian mythology thing here, like anybody who is a fan of Egyptian mythology, which are probably the only people who bother to watch this movie, they're going to be saying the same thing. Like, you're six generations removed here. Like, are these the more famous gods or something that they pick for this movie? I think some of them, but then there's, like, some that just don't even get, like, reference, like, um, like, Ta and Amun and, you know, Baset and Sekhmet, all these gods that are pretty like notable like i'd say there's like 10 to 12 ones that like students students learn in school that like just don't come into this at all and and why is set not stealing their powers because that's the other weird thing in this movie is that like the scene that just played with his wife he can steal their powers by killing them why have gods not been doing this forever yeah and it's also very selective yeah on the day that he decides to take the the throne from Horus. Couldn't he have just done this all along? Like, yeah. <laughs> poison Horus, and then he just automatically gets it instead of making a spectacle in front of thousands of not real people. <laughs> and why does he need Horus? Because Horus's power is that he's supposed to be the god of the air, so of course they gave him perfect vision. I don't know, he has two powers as a god. But yet his wife has this power of flight, so like, does he have it twice now? What, what does it benefit him to get wings from two people? I don't know. Well, it, it comes up later because I'm looking at the Wikipedia plot of it. Later on, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gerard Butler mm-hmm. has... Um, let me find it. Where is it? Oh, he has Thosprain. I don't know how to pronounce it. Osiris's heart, Horus's eye, and the wings from his wife. So he has these four parts of four principal gods that, unless I missed it, like, we didn't see that, how did he get the brain and the heart? I see where he gets, there is the moment where he gets the brain later on, uh, but that character does not seem to die, which is the other confusing thing. Uh, But here's my other question. He gets the wings from his wife, but he could have gotten those from Horus as well, because Horus is supposed to be the god of the air, but he gets the eyes from Horus which he doesn't use, he takes all these other powers from all the other gods to make himself more powerful. When he gets Horus's eyes, he puts them in two separate locations and does nothing with them. Meanwhile, the entire time, he could have also taken his power of flight, and instead he waits a year to take it from his own wife? Couldn't he have just also gone to that mountain and said, please, can I have Yeah, exactly. He's like, look, I know I killed your other son, but he was about to hand the throne over to his lazy, womanizing, drunken son. Who would have been the worst king ever? Can you just give me powers to rule everybody here, grandfather? 
Or I guess that would be his father. Great, great, great grandfather or whatever. And all these characters are like seemingly related. So here's where we introduce my favorite character of the movie, uh, Hathor or Hathor or whatever. Um, are you a fan of the Marvel TV shows? Some. Like the Netflix ones? Some. Okay, so um, did you watch either Daredevil or The Defenders? I'm eventually getting to The Defenders, okay. so no. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't get there too quickly. But anyway, so Daredevil <laughs> Season 2. <laughs> it's, it's not a bad show. It's just one of these things that you watch and you're like, yeah, that could have existed or not existed. I don't think it would have changed much. But still, it's not bad for what it is. It's shorter. Uh, anyways, so Elodie Young, who plays Elektra in Daredevil Season 2, probably the only thing, well, her and the Punisher, only things I liked about Daredevil Season 2. Then in The Defenders, as Elektra again, best thing about The Defenders. Now, it doesn't hurt that she's, like, the most stunning woman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, and this is confession time. Second when, most. Second? Well, who's first? Uh, Jamie. Oh, Jamie. That's right. Anyways, Jamie. Uh, sorry about that, Jamie. Uh, but uh, just um, confession time here. So when I suggested to watch this movie, it was because I saw she was in it. Uh, I just finished watching The Defenders. I'm like, oh, I got to see this girl in something else. So this is like my Henry Cavill. Uh, Jamie will forgive me for that little slip up there. But uh, I watched this movie for her. Now, the first time I watched this movie, I'm like, she's terrible in this movie. Second time I watched it, I'm like, I kind of like her character. Uh, because she's the only one who seems to have a little bit of humor. And the humor that she has, like, it's all going to come out later with, like, her Eric. She's supposed to be the goddess of love or whatever. But here's another subplot that's not properly explored at all. Which is, she was supposed to be with Horace... She left him and stayed with Set as his, you know, mistress or whatever. Uh, but she did this to save Horace's life somehow. I don't understand it. So there's a scene here where she's secretly spying on Horace in her sand magic ball or whatever. And uh, uh, Set finds her and she escapes and she casts herself. She's supposed to be, I, I guess she had two powers. She used to be like the goddess of death or something like that. And now she's the goddess of love, which they don't explain at all in this movie. She has this really terrible looking fight scene and it eventually lands in the desert as well. Uh, we get the snake fight here. Um, <laughs> this is great. Now, here's the one sequence I actually thought was kind of fun to watch. The giant snake. So when Horace and Beck are at this abandoned temple or whatever it is, which is cool because it looks like they're walking on top of like a, a maze or a labyrinth. There's all these little pits underneath. And it's it's a fun-looking sequence, but again, it makes no sense at all, because Seth has just sent an army to take his wife. He knows Horace is back. He knows Horace has one of his eyes. He knows Horace is the only one who opposes him. So he sends two people on giant snakes. He sends two people. This makes no sense at all. But the sequence is at least fun. Um, it, even if, again, we have sand blowing everywhere and nobody is dirty, uh... I like the fight scene. I, I, I like the, the really creepy thing that happens on the end is when uh, Hathor or whatever shows up here and she, um, uh, it, 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 I guess, turns the snake on itself. She It's kind of a creepy way to end an action sequence. She has the snake commit suicide where she says, you look cold, you need to warm yourself. And the snake essentially commits suicide. Like, again, this is kind of a children's movie here. Um, just breezing through some of the other stuff that's happening here 
You would uh, call this a children's movie? I, well, I don't think it's a children's movie, but I think that they were it's too immature to really be geared towards like the Lord of the Rings crowd. I mean, Lord of the Rings appeals more to children than I think this would, but Lord of the Rings is a more mature movie. So I think on a maturity level, I would consider it more childish, if that makes sense. I'm just hard to believe that a mythology movie you'd call well, for children. I guess in the same way that like the mummy movies would be appealing more to maybe not children, but maybe like teenagers, if anything. Children are watching the trolls and Christopher Robin. <laughs> yeah, the same audience that uh, is currently out there watching Christopher Robin or the Emoji Movie were also big fans of Gods of Egypt last year. They were raving about it. Yeah, <laughs> that was the only audience they had. Um, anyway, so after this snake fight scene here, uh, we get inside the temple, and uh, or is this where he gets in there and he's? Um, I've lost track, but I'm just going to breeze through a bunch of stuff here. Uh, There's a fight scene between Hathor and uh, Horus here. These are the hardest character names to pronounce, too. Uh, Anyways, so uh, this is where they kind of allude to the fact that, you know, she was doing this to save his life. Uh, This is where I liked her character, um, where he was basically saying, you know, while I was sitting blind in my father's tomb, you were sharing a bed with the god who pulled up my eyes. Which, again, there's much easier ways to write that line. Like, that's such a terribly written line. But then she just sort of, like, points to herself, says, why waste this on someone who can't see? Which I just loved. Uh, we have a weird scene here where she's talking to Beck, and their eye lines are not matching up at all. This is the worst effect in the movie of the height difference, and one of the few times that actually shows them on screen together. And you can tell they're not even looking at each other. They eventually go and meet Black Panther here. Uh, Chadwick Boseman's such a good actor. Like, I don't know what he's doing in this movie either. Uh, and he is serenading a head of lettuce. <laughs> like, how do you, what, do you know what he's doing here? Help me out. I don't get why they gave him the character, comic relief character. It just seems so out of place that the, the quote unquote, like, smart character. Yeah. Is supposed to be the, the like, oh, shucks, haha, funny, like. Mm-hmm character because they give him later on when they're in the library or whatever you want to call it that he has like a random line of that was oh, i forget the line but it was like everyone looks oh yeah do i have a a problem with vanity or something mm-hmm. and everyone's dressed like him and everyone's like um turning their heads tilting and like going hmm and it's like why does he get this sort of treatment yeah, that, that's kind of what I, I was just... saying earlier, like, that he seems like the dumbest character in the movie. And I mean, I kind of like him in this. He's funny, but maybe it is just more that he's the comic relief where he should be and the intellectual character. I don't know. Well, you can't. I just think it's weird to have the God of Wisdom as like the comic relief yeah. character. And I I think that one his character is probably one of the better written ones as well, mm-hmm. even though I'm bashing like his him being comic relief. I think it's not a badly terribly written character i think some of the treatment of other characters is far worse than what he got Mm -hmm. um i'm just gonna breeze through a bunch of the scenes here because this is just all walking through the desert we get everybody walking all the heroes walking through the sandstorm which is hilarious because this is like the biggest sandstorm of the movie where there is no dirt or dust on anybody this is where hathor is asking him like how he was lying about being able to bring zaya back to life uh, I love in this sandstorm that the wind changes directions from shot to shot. Sometimes it's blowing them from behind, sometimes the side, sometimes the front. Uh, this is Maybe they it... have a, a secret god ability that 
dust doesn't collect on them. Yeah, well, then Beck must be a god then, because he's like the cleanest one in this movie. I think that that was just a storyline that just got it cut left on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another backstory here that I, I, this is why I said I felt this was the more interesting love story that they, they really go nowhere with. They spend so much time on Beck and Zaya. And you have the mention here about how, uh, Hathor used to be the goddess of death or whatever, that Horus slayed, like, I don't know how many demons, 400 demons or something like that to free her. And that's why she's now the goddess of love. She has this weird bracelet, which I don't even understand what the power is. Uh, this is too late in the movie to be telling that. Like, they barely were even introduced. Okay, here I think is the problem with their love story. They're introduced together in a scene where you get the impression that they're, I don't know if they're supposed to be husband and wife or just dating or whatever, but it's her right after we've seen him wake up surrounded by about 400 women. So you don't really get that it's a serious relationship in the first place. She leaves him for set, and now they're throwing this thing out there that they had this great backstory, which really would have been interesting to hear about much earlier in the movie that he freed her and that she owes him for something. But all this is just, it's just thrown out there loosely. I don't even know if you caught that line as they threw it out there, but that's supposed to be the backstory. And I would have liked to have seen more explored than that. I think that would have made their characters a little more interesting. Uh, we get a quick sand message here from Zaya. She gets to talk about, I love that earlier in the movie, they specifically said, you can never communicate between the dead and the living. And Hathor is like, sure you can, here. And another thing of convenience in the movie that she just pops up, oh, well, I'm the one person who knows how to do this. And then they can communicate. Uh, let's just quickly also talk about the flaming pyramid scene here. So this is another uh, one of the defying the laws of physics. We have Beck running across collapsing stairs. Uh, we get the, this is where we get introduced to the Black Panther character and uh, the the riddle so the whole uh, riddle where he's supposed to get them. This is straight out of The Hobbit, basically. And he keeps getting the wrong answer because he's arrogant and he's trying to answer really smart things. And in the end, uh, I think it's probably Beck who just says, oh, answer it like you're immortal. And this giant sand creature turns to dust. None of them get dirty again. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anything else to uh, cover here other than the fact that Zaya is getting pretty close to the afterlife and still has no gifts to give the god of the afterlife. Anything you want to add on these? It almost feels like it's going to be a really weird reference, but it almost feels weirdly like the Lion King and where like you're in the middle of the desert and then moments later Simba arrives at the the oasis desert to with Timon and Pumbaa and like that's what this becomes where like they travel a little bit and all of a sudden they're in the most lush oasis ever like knee waist deep water or whatever and then the landscape just is crazy Egypt is a lot more varied than I expected (laughs) or at least this version of Egypt Mm -hmm. that was just all that I was thinking of because I couldn't vote the dialogue was just losing me a little bit and the love story was getting tangled and all I got was they're running away trying to get this other eye or something. It, just, it was a mess. I, I don't have anything. And I think this is, and I always get lost on this, uh, but I think this is where Hather gives up her life or something like that. Because I think she's just gone from the movie here. Um, when yeah, I been... couldn't tell what, I, like, I knew that it was bad because he was like, no, don't do it, don't do it. But yeah. I didn't realize that her bracelet was like her life or something. Yeah, it's it's such sloppy storytelling. 
Uh, and she was like a slight, like, I, I'm not alone. She's, she's one of the more fun characters in this movie. I mean, I, I like the moment too, where, uh, they're going to meet the Toth or Toth or whatever, the Black Panther. And he tells her to turn around and she's like, what, you like the view better from behind? And he's like, no, wait a second. You know, I can't lie. Yes, but that's not what I meant. Like, that was kind of a funny moment. One of the few funny moments in the movie. Yeah, she was a decent character the whole movie. And, like, I loved her in the beginning when they were doing, like, when they, were, they have sex for the first time that we that we see in the movie. And afterwards, she's like, can I have the knife? And it's like, what do you want to do, kill me? She's like, if I could, I would, or something like about the funny dialogue that they got. And she was, like, interesting to watch because she was, you know, playing the role of trying to be submissive. But then when she was against it, she was the dominant force and, you know, banishing herself to the underworld or whatever she did. So like, she was really interesting. It's just in all this dialogue and all this action and all this like chaos, it was just, how can you appreciate a character? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's kind of what you're saying earlier. It's just nonstop action. And most of it is too hard to even follow that the story just gets lost. Um, I love here as we're getting close to the end of the movie where set. Now, the only reason again, convenience in this movie the only reason Set killed his wife was that we had an explanation for how he could get up to the International Space Station, because now he has wings to fly there. And now we get, again, a scene where I think that you could have done a lot more with, but I'm not really following anybody's point of view. Set is going up there talking to Ra. He's basically trying to kill Ra. And uh, Ra has this weird line about, you know, the reason I didn't give you children is because I didn't want you to miss your children as much as I miss mine. But it's like, but you gave your other son children. <laughs> so what's he trying to say here? And then he makes the worst pitch ever. He goes, my plan for you is for you to take my place here so that you could fight this worm every single night. Like all these gods are just in the middle of retiring. <laughs> That's basically what this movie is. It's God retirement. You have Osiris retiring, giving it to his son. You have Ra retiring and trying to give it to his son. But like, in what world is his greedy son, Set, going to be like, that sounds great, Dad. I'm so honored that you want me to sit up here by myself with no friends, no food, no entertainment, nothing, sharpening my sword on a wooden stone and fighting a space worm every single night. Like, he makes no real pitch for it here. Uh, and then we get the the great Gerard Butler's Oscar clip here uh, where uh, he says something like, you know, no God can do that. He goes, I'm not just one God. <laughs> this Gerard Butler is not on his game in this movie. Uh, and he, you think, kills his father. And now the worm is coming to eat the earth. Why? I don't know. Set Gerard Butler had some plan where he said he wanted to destroy the afterlife but this worm is not coming to eat the afterlife. It's coming to eat the world that Set has spent a year building. And it's in direct vicinity. Like, it is not just coming towards the world. It is coming towards this giant statue, which Gerard Butler has spent the whole movie building for some reason. And I don't understand why. And here's the other thing of just convenience in this movie. So when Beck and Horace come back here, we're just going to cover all the action stuff here in the climax. Um, they come back and they find this architect... Uh, the slave owner, Zaya's slave owner, and they take him, they're like, we need you to take us to the top of the tower. Because that's obviously the spot they're going to intercept this space worm or battle with Set or whatever. And he's the only guy that can get them up there. So this thing, let's say it's like 100 stories. They go up about 10. And then Horace is like, 
well, guys, see ya, and he starts climbing the rest of the way. Why did they have to get this guy? Like, the only reason this happened in the movie where Horace and Beck grabbed the slave owner, the movie's explanation is because they needed him to get to the top of the tower. Horace didn't need this. He climbs the rest of the way with his staff. So the, the, the convenience of this is that we needed a reason to have Beck to have somebody to fight, which lasts about five minutes in the middle of this elevator. It really doesn't matter at all for the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is all set fighting Horace on the top of this, which again, he did not need to take the elevator for. He just climbed. And Beck comes up to the top. We get this moment where Horace proves he would be the worst king ever because the entire world and afterlife and all of existence, all of creation, as they're saying, is about to be devoured by the giant space worm. I almost think this movie would be more fun for people to listen to if they haven't seen it. Uh, and Beck is about to fall off this mere human and Horace goes and saves Beck, which should be a nice moment, but anybody in their right mind is sitting there saying, but the space worm is about to destroy the world. And he, he lost a chance to get his eye. He drops him and eventually realizes, I never needed my eye after all. My grandfather was trying to let me know. I, the power was in me all along. It's so cheesy. The movie's done nothing to explain why he can suddenly have this power or you know, what it was set stole from him with his eyes. I don't understand any of this. Um, we now get the robo bird fight between Gerard Butler and Jamie Lannister. Uh, it's it, again, because it's just like I explained earlier on these bird robo birds are the same color as everything in the background. It just all looks like a mess. Uh, anything else happened here? Eventually they kill set, uh, Horace becomes a new king. Um, uh, oh, I, I also really appreciated the great visual effects when his head is the regular head of Horus, but his body is the robo-bird, and the body seems like two sizes too small. It just looks like a giant head floating on a bad CGI body. Um, we find out Ra is still alive, so uh, Horus saves Ra's life. A little girl found his eye. <laughs> Won't that come in handy? Um, and Ra gives Beck, who died, and Zaya life. So they could live on for a sequel that nobody wants to see. That is Gods of Egypt. Rossi, have at it. You did a good job explaining it. <laughs> it I do have to say I liked the 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 two things actiony things that I liked in the movie was the beginning fight at that temple of a million people, mm-hmm. and then the last one was just between the two of them at the top of the whatever they were on top of. All the space worm and <laughs> sandstorm and you know, skeletons in the underworld and all that, like, doesn't interest me. But I thought that the those two fight scenes between the two of them were pretty fun. Was it the best? No, I think they just wanted to blow up the pyramid as well for any fun effect, because dramatic. It, it was an ending. Like, it, <laughs> I don't think it was awful. Like, it wasn't an awful ending, but for given the rest of the movie, it was the ending that it was going to give us. Like, I didn't expect anything wildly crazy, wildly interesting, wildly good. It was just the ending that we were going to get with this kind of action-based retelling movie. Mm -hmm. I I didn't expect anything else. I, I thought the fight was more fun than I expected, and that was about it. Well, I will say that on a second viewing, and I'm glad Jamie's not here right now, uh, otherwise 
she'd be saying the same thing again. Because when I was watching, I'm like, you know, this movie makes more sense the second time. I did find some of the action stuff more entertaining on a second viewing, but I think that's part of the problem. And I, I've, uh, I think there's a lot of movies like this, and people often wonder when they see a really bad movie, and like, you know, why did they not fix this? They're like, how did they not realize they had a problem here? The more you've seen something, the more easy it gets to fall. Like Ben and I even talked about that with uh, the Last Jedi. We still both are like, well, The Last Jedi was kind of a mess of a movie. But the more times no you watch it... Well, we won't spoil it, um, as we spoiled The Force Awakens. But um, th- th- there's some people got to... Uh, that's got to be at our best of clip at the end of the year, where I spoil The Force Awakens twist for Mallory. Uh, I can't remember which episode that was on. Oh, <laughs> thought the movie's been out for three years. Should be free of spoilers by now. But anyways, <laughs> um, so... <laughs> The more you see a movie, the more you can appreciate things. And I think that's part of the problem is that movies are meant to be a... It's going to have its impact the first time you see it. And if it doesn't grab you the first time, it's not going to leave a lasting impression. Every once in a while, you'll get something like Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, or The Last Jedi, where the movie really does suck. But if you kind of are a big enough fan, you're curious enough to give it a second viewing, you'll appreciate it more. That's the reason filmmakers get caught in these messes like Gods of Egypt, because... They're sitting there watching this movie day in and day out, editing it, changing this and that. So it all makes sense to them. And it's all something they appreciate because the more you watch it, the more you get used to it. On a first viewing, so much of this just doesn't work. And I, I, I will agree with you. I think that the, I appreciate the action more on a second viewing. Not enough they think this needed sequels because apparently this was the setup for sequels. They did a terrible job setting up for a sequel because I don't know where you would go from here other than the fact yeah, where's that... Where's the cliffhanger? Which cliffhanger was it? Where no? Where is it? Like where was it? Mm-hmm. Was it the That's literal cliff that they they hung off? Yeah, of? <laughs> because the only thing in this movie that's unresolved is why can Beck do these things? But it's such a non-factor in this movie; it's just loosely mentioned that you don't really care. Um, well, let's go through the. Well, I think just to touch on what you were saying about the rewatch, mm-hmm. I think that it gets easier for you to enjoy the action sequences because that's pretty much all you get. Yeah. You weren't like, oh man, I'm going to rewatch Gods of Egypt because the plot was so good. Exactly. Or that expected, unexpected twist came in at the last minute. And I was like, whoa, Zaya's the hero of the movie or something. Like that doesn't happen. So all you have to rely on are these cool action sequences or even the CGI to some effect that was going to keep your attention. And there's Elodie Young, the second most stunning woman in the world, thank you. Third. Third? Who's second? You said the... Oh, no. That's the same woman. <laughs> that's what? I got confused. Never mind. Jamie's <laughs> one. This woman's two. Yeah. Done. <laughs> She's getting bumped down as this uh, episode progresses. Um, I do still have one more Lodi Young movie on my uh, watch list, which is The Hitman's Bodyguard with Samuel Jackson and Ryan Reynolds. Can't bring myself to watch it yet because, uh, well, I'm not a big fan of Ryan Reynolds. But... Uh, <laughs> I heard we. I heard it was bad enough. We could probably cover it this month. Yeah, <laughs> I'll watch it tonight, and it'll be our fourth movie by the end of the month. Um, before we get to our wrap up here, let's give our reviews because I, I first want to say for anybody who's listening to this, our bad movie month is not just going to be us immediately bidding movies. Like we kind of went into saying, like we we want to cover more things that we get a variety of opinions on because it's not just obviously we just went through Jurassic Parks and Mission Impossibles two series that Ben and I for the most part bought everything on but some of the movies we're going to be covering coming up 
which again I'll tease, swept away with Madonna, Battlefield Earth with John John Travolta, and uh, the Room, um, which will probably also comment on the Disaster Artist as a companion to that. Some of us may actually be fans of that enough to give it a more positive review, which is part of the fun of this. This one, I had no idea what you're going to do. I'm obviously bidding this one. What are you going to do with it? Um, I think I'm going to join you. You're going to bin it. Yeah, because I at first I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. And then I was like, oh, this is really bad. And then at the end, I was like, this isn't that bad. <laughs> but I think it is it's definitely It's a bin. Is it like bottom of the barrel bin? Probably not, but it's still in the garbage. Yeah, like there are bad movies where I'm like, I can never bring myself to watch that again. Part of the reason we're doing this bad movie month is because I saw this and I'm like, this one is bad in... It's fun enough in being bad that you'd have fun making fun of it. So there is some enjoyment, even if it's for bad reasons, to like this Yeah, movie. it's not unwatchable by any means of the imagination. Like, there's like... Like, it's just a cool movie to watch. Like, there's just cool stuff about it. Mm. So I think that while it is bad, like, there's bad story, bad plot, bad developments, no no character growth in some people... A lot of action, space worms, like <laughs> all bad stuff, but it's not unwatchable. Yeah. I think that there are far more movies that are more unwatchable. Um, box office is interesting for this one. So I did say the movie like almost made its budget back. It made $150 million worldwide. It had a budget of $140 million. Now, one thing people have to understand when it comes to box office is that that's how much it's made in admissions. But <clears throat> a movie studio is not getting all that because the theater owners themselves are getting part of the box office as well. So what the movie studio paid for this versus what they got, they probably made a third to about half of their budget back, you know, maybe a little bit more. It is interesting that along with a lot of other really bad blockbuster movies, foreign box office was big for this. Almost $120 million overseas. North America, $31 million. Uh, Just looking at the opening weekend of this, it opened February 26th. Uh, 2016, opened number two at the box office behind Deadpool, which was in its third week. So it opened with $14 million. Other movies that opened that week were Triple Nine and Eddie the Eagle. What a shame that Eddie the Eagle made less than half of Gods of Egypt. Uh, do you like Eddie the Eagle? Have you seen it? Uh, nope. You really should. Eddie the Eagle is great. We covered it in the um, uh, Olympics month. Uh, so here's the fun part we're going to get to here uh, before we get to our new segment. So reviews... I'm actually going to cover some of the reviews here because the next day when I was still talking to Jay about how bad this movie was, I felt the need to message her some of the reviews because the reviews for this movie are almost as funny as the movie itself. Uh, so Bilgi Ebery from the New York Magazine uh, says, If it wasn't all CGI, I would have said I hope they saved the sets for another better movie. <laughs> um, Alan... Shurstool from the Village Voice says, As bad movies go, this one at least is all in on its badness, which is pretty true. Uh, Allegra Frank from Polygon says, It's not satisfied with being your average forgettable blockbuster. No, it wants to be something much worse. A big budget disaster whose existence is meant to lull those unfortunate few watching to sleep, only to shock them awake in a fit of rage. Which I don't agree with how harsh that one is, but it's pretty funny. Uh... Tara Brady from Irish Times says, Any picture featuring Jeffrey Rush channeling King Lear as the patriarch god Ra while flying a boat in a spaceship can't be all bad. 
Peter Travers from Rolling Stone says, What raises gods of Egypt above all other historically botched FX epics is the stupefying schlock of its visual effects from Raw's shoddy spaceship to the digital monsters that take shape like something out of video apps for dummies. Come back, Clash of the Titans. All is forgiven. Uh, here's my favorite one from Laney Gossip, which is a, a Canadian site. Uh, none of this garbage makes sense, which I think I probably quoted in this episode. Uh, we're going to add ours in here as well. Um, bad but not unwatchable. Uh, last segment here, Rossi. I don't think you've been on any of the episodes to do this yet, but we're doing this for all of our movie recaps now. So IMDb has keywords that will link to something else of the movie or something else that's similar. So for example, keywords for gods of Egypt would be Egypt, ancient Egypt, Egyptian God. And you can see what other movies have that in it or what other movies feature that. Uh, Some of the fun ones on here, horned humanoid. So Gods of Egypt is number one on movies of horned humanoid. Hellboy is number two. And an episode of Young Justice agenda. There's a lot, several Young Justice episodes after that. Uh, Topless Male, Jamie's favorite one. Um, Gods of Egypt. Well, Justice League is, of course, number one. The Last Jedi, number two. Avatar, Gods of Egypt is number four. I think we've covered that on most of our episodes here. Shirtless Male is a uh, uh, favorite on here. Uh, Brother, Brother, Hug. What's your favorite Brother, Brother, Hug movie, Rossi? Um, I don't have one. Would you believe that Gods of Egypt is number one ahead of The Fighter with Christian Bale and Mark Wahlberg and Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time? I don't know how, I, I don't know if this comes up based on like how many people click on that, but it's certainly not because of the reviews, but Gods of Egypt's the number one brother, brother hug. Uh, we got Bearded Man, uh, Weapons Fire, uh, Red Leaf Lettuce. So this is what we'll, we'll climax on here. Gods of Egypt is the only title with the keyword red leaf lettuce, which I was there. Uh, it was green. In this red movie. leaf. I don't remember seeing red leaf lettuce. Yeah, it was green. So even this keyword is wrong. Uh, I don't think that lettuce comes up any more times on this, but I have to search regardless. No, just one mention of lettuce here. Oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll do one more here. Uh, pulled into water with clothes on. This is a real thing. Gods of Egypt, The House Where Evil Dwells, and The Olsen Gang in Jutland from 1971. There are oh, th- what a classic. Yeah, three movies, all with pulled into water with clothes on. I would have thought Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would be on there. Uh, anyways, that's it for Gods of Egypt. Um, what a movie. Uh, too bad we couldn't get Jamie out here. Maybe I'll just uh, put a brief thing on the end here. I'm sure Jamie will want to record something. Uh, she'll be back anytime now just giving her assessment on this movie uh but rossi uh are you looking forward to any of the other ones we have coming up battlefield earth the room or swept away with madonna uh i'm interested in the madonna one now have you ever told me about it no i haven't i haven't seen any of the movies that were recommended for this month this one goes back a year. So here's the great thing about this. Ben forgets this, but I'm going to play the clip in the episode if we can. Uh, when we covered Impractical Jokers, unfortunately, <laughs> we, we we didn't have a specific episode because we had this thing last summer, which we may do again in the future, where our listeners could suggest random episodes or random TV shows and we would watch it. Impractical Jokers was mentioned not with an episode, so we just picked a random one. Fortunately, it turned out to not be the best Impractical Jokers episode. Ben thought it was the dumbest show ever. I'm like, we have to show you a good Impractical Jokers. You were on board with me. We tried coming up with one. 
the only way I was able to convince Ben to do another Impractical Jokers episode is if I agreed to do Swept Away with Madonna. Now, Ben probably forgets this, but I will play the clip if we have to. And as soon as we're done doing Swept Away, we will force Ben to watch Impractical Jokers again. So are you getting your Impractical Jokers episode ready? I've had it planned for years. We've had it since this time last year. So, uh, Ben, if you're listening to this now, sorry, we just spoiled it for you. But uh, I'm thinking, I'm not sure which one we're going to do next. Battlefield Earth, The Room, uh, Swept Away. It'll all depend on Ben's schedule. But some combination of the three of us will be in all these episodes. Maybe we'll even convince Jamie to do one of these with us. Um, Rossi, anything else you want to add on Gods of Egypt before we go? All right. Uh, That says it all. My name is Colin, and my favorite red leaf lettuce movie is Gods of Egypt. My name is Rossi, and I'm glad we defeated the evil face worm. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net. Okay, Jamie, we said you had to bring you on here because you actually said you liked Gods of Egypt. You need to tell us what is it you found any enjoyment in. I like this movie. I know that some parts of it didn't make sense. and Some parts? Yeah, and also that um, for the movie, you know, I don't know. I just love everything Egyptian. Everything Egyptian? Yeah. Okay, but this is a bad movie about Egyptian. It, it Just try to explain to me. But it had nice eye candy. That's all it takes for you in a movie. Yeah? Why do you think I want to keep watching King Arthur on the PVR the other day? King Arthur is another one that one day we'll cover. The <laughs> King Arthur movie was terrible, but it, again, the same thing. You're like, it's a pretty good movie. As long as it has eye candy in it, then I'm... I'm. Okay, but you have to defend your opinion of liking this movie, even aside from, you know, Jamie Lannister with his eye patch or Gerard Butler you know, shirtless or whoever else in this movie. The story, can you explain the story? Like, I want you to sum up what the story was in Gods of Egypt. It was about that uh, guy. Um, <laughs> We're doing good so far. What's his name? Starts with the H. The guy with the eye patch. Horus. Horus. Yeah. Anyways, Horus. Yeah. And um, he loses his powers, and then he has to go through a journey, ups and downs, <laughs> of getting them back and beating up his brother. Uh huh. Yeah. And saving the world. And saving the world. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a terrible movie, the way you described it and what I, I liked saw. It. it was terrible. That is all. I liked it. How about the effects? How great were those effects? They were awful, but they... I liked it. Do <laughs> you want to give a final line from the movie? I don't remember any of the lines. I just remember that I liked it. Okay, I'm going to give I, you... I, I know I keep saying it, but I liked it. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote from this movie, one of the great quotes of Gods of Egypt, and you can give me your, my name is. My name is Jamie Ann. What would I be the god of stupidity?